Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the CrocCast. I'm Laura Miller-Graff, Associate Professor of Psychology and Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame, and your host for today's episode. In the midst of the ongoing global coronavirus pandemic, the word resilience seems to be showing up in conversation a lot. But what do we mean by this term? Historically, resilience has often been used to refer to people's ability to bounce back. But as research and practice have advanced, this conceptualization has been contested. Rather than resilience being some kind of intrinsic, stable quality, we think about it as a dynamic and multi-systemic process that considers how we are interconnected. From this view, resilience becomes something not residing just within the individual, but as a process that's mutually influenced by the individual and by the resources, structures, and relationships of the community in which they live. The COVID-19 pandemic has unquestionably posed a significant threat to our world today, And I'm joined by two esteemed Crack Institute alumni who are going to help us think about how these dramatic challenges have given rise to community processes that are helping us build a better, more just future. First, we have Katie Mansfield, a 2008 master's graduate who serves as the director of the Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Resilience, also known as STAR, program at Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Welcome, Katie. Also with us is Lisa McKay, an author and psychologist specializing in stress and trauma issues related especially to relief and development work. Lisa is based in Australia, and you can follow some of her writing online at lisamckaywriting.com. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks to you both for being here. And maybe we'll start with Katie. Can you just start by giving a brief overview of the situation related to the coronavirus pandemic in your area right now? I live in Rockingham County in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia in the U.S. It's a place that was Haudenosaunee haunting ground that is now a refugee resettlement location with over 50 languages spoken in the high school, uh, though it is a primarily white community and its largest industries are poultry plants and agriculture, along with healthcare retail, and a few universities. So that kind of gives you a little picture of where we are. And we're also about 60 miles up the road from Charlottesville, Virginia, which was very prominently in the news about three years ago, and about 130 miles from the state capital, which was a former capital of the Confederacy. So just locating us historically as well in terms of waves of of white supremacy and the history that we have to address in this particular location. So that's kind of where I am. And luckily, related to COVID-19, our governor is a physician and has taken some more aggressive measures to protect Virginians. So we're not quite as overwhelmed as some other states. And I think the word I heard David Anderson Hooker and another colleague based in Richmond, Dr. Ram Bhagat, use was syndemic, that this is a pandemic that is hitting different bodies and different groups in disproportionate ways, and it's hitting black and brown bodies disproportionately. So that is some of the way that this is shaping up where I'm located. 
I'm wondering if you could take just a minute to expand on that a little more. So you talked about the disproportionate effects of the pandemic. Can you talk a little more about how the pandemic has exacerbated existing forms of structural inequity or what you've seen in your area as intersecting forms of violence with the pandemic? Yeah. And I want to acknowledge like my role here as a white American woman who's originally from New York and transplanted here. Depending who you talk to, they might say, wow, we're having this sudden awakening about racism. Or you might hear like, not a whole lot has changed except that there are more headlines attending to this. So I just want to acknowledge that depending who you're talking to, they have a very different take about how much has or has not changed. And in the last weeks, a number of memorials have been taken down and there is a much louder, wider set of conversations in more communities about our history. So that's one piece of it. And the other piece of it is that as more and more people are showing up to protest, there is both health concern related to that. What is it to congregate in public in ways that we have not had to face? And there's the reality that there are counter protesters showing up armed. So there's, there's a lot more for us to face. Yeah, very complex outside of the direct health effects. Lisa, I'm wondering if you could also just give us a brief overview of where you're located and how the pandemic has affected your community. Sure. Thanks, Laura. So I'm currently sitting in Australia. We've been back in Australia. My family and I have been back in Australia just over a year after spending four years in the South Pacific in Vanuatu. So we're getting to know Australia again after having been away for a long time. Australia is having quite a different experience than most of the US with the pandemic at this stage. So we've had just under 9,000 cases and just over 100 deaths, 106 deaths so far. But what we've seen here was Australia went quite hard quite quickly to do community lockdowns and to do a lot of stay-at-home orders that was quite a unified approach from the Australian government and quite effective. But in the last week, we've had a resurgence, particularly down in Melbourne. And in the last 24 hours, the state border between our two most popular states, New South Wales and Victoria, has been closed until further notice. Melbourne and some of the surrounding areas in Victoria have gone back into six weeks of stay-at-home orders. And there are particularly, there are nine low-income housing towers in Melbourne that are under um, mandatory detention right now, where everyone in those towers has been confined to their homes for five days minimum, while public health officials seek to test everyone in the towers. And so that just resonates with what Katie was saying about the disproportionate impact. And one thing this pandemic has really showed me is that the the vulnerable really are the most vulnerable, that the people particularly living in those towers, many of them immigrants to Australia from all over the world, many of them having far fewer buffers and support layers in terms of income and language skills and connections here in Australia. It makes sense from a public health point of view why towers like that are amazing vectors for infection when you're sharing elevators and laundry facilities and things like that. But it's really hitting these vulnerable populations who are already living 
under such strain disproportionately hard. Thanks for sharing that, Lisa. I'm wondering if both of you could speak to all of those those challenges, those different intersecting complex overlays, you know, the pandemic and immigration and racial injustice, right? They're all kind of coming together in complex ways. And I'm wondering if you can speak to how those intersecting experiences affect mental health and well-being in your communities. Gosh, it's such a big question. Mm -hmm. And the short answer is it's taking a real toll on mental health all over the map. You know, I, I really don't know anybody at any level of privilege who hasn't experienced some struggle and suffering as a result of this pandemic in my community and in communities all over the world. I've, I've done a fair bit of support work in the last couple of months for communities based in India and, and Indonesia and, and different areas of the world, and no one is coming out of this unscathed. So I see rising levels of anxiety, rising levels of depression, increased substance use, one of the particularly cruel things about this pandemic is one of the best buffers we have, one of the, the strongest resilience tools is, is connection, is social, our social relationships and our connections to each other. And the things that we are being asked and re- requested to do socially to limit the spread of the virus hit that buffer area particularly hard. So really disruptive to connection. And anything that's really disruptive to connection, even leaving aside all the rest of it, is going to take a toll. Mm -hmm. And so we are seeing a very big toll and I think the emotional footprint of the virus will continue to ripple and echo for years to come. And it's not all doom and gloom. I I don't want to paint a picture of just unrelenting gloom because I think one of the potential good things, one of the potential post-traumatic growth areas that can come out of this pandemic is when you have gone through hard times, it can leave you with an increased sense of empowerment and an, an increased sense of self-knowledge of like, wow, that was really tough, but we survived. It was a struggle, but we survived. And that sense of empowerment can equip you in ways that help feed into resilience better in the future. So I don't want to say it's all doom and gloom, but I, what I will say is that so far I have seen a lot of, there's been a lot of challenge and there's a lot of ripple effects when it comes to mental health. Katie, are you seeing similar things in your community? Yeah, I would say everyone has a new survival threat. A lot of people have been keenly aware of various survival threats all along, whether it's because they're immune compromised or because they're living on the edge financially or economically or socially. And now there is this survival threat to everyone. So yes, you know, you you made that reference to like at every level of privilege, right? So in the in the more privileged places, there's the how do I do my job and homeschool my child, (laughs) which I've never done before. And in more pained edges and less privileged edges, there's the compounding impact of that social isolation on fragile mental health, on addiction, on domestic violence situations. And so this is inflaming. And as you say, there's not that possibility for connection, for outreach, for finding places of safety from those things. You know, we've mentioned the simultaneity of COVID-19 with what seems to be maybe some kind of tipping point for the U.S. and the world, attending to persecution, exclusion, and brutality against Black and brown bodies. And so there is this profound pain 
throughout the system. And some of you know, I started dancing on March 14th, five times a day, mainly because it's medicinal to me. And for me, dance is prayer. And Alice Walker writes, hard times require furious dancing. And so I thought these are kind of hard times. And so now people from many countries have joined and we're still dancing five times a day. And there are a couple of Mohawk aunties, they call themselves, and they have conveyed to the dancers as they teach us Mohawk words and as they join us daily that their Mohawk matriarchs are very clear that this is a time that so much change is possible and perhaps the virus is here to teach us something. And because they have been cultivating so much resilience in the face of so much oppression for so many years, they brought a very different perspective than, say, you know, my home community, which is a bunch of wonderful white New Yorkers. <laughs> yeah, thanks to both of you for sharing those. I'm wondering, you know, one th- things that came up common, I mean, in both in both of what you were talking about was kind of these recognizing the extreme challenge of our current global circumstances for lots of people for many different reasons, but also some promise of of support structures or transformational change that's already kind of brewing a little bit. And I think one thing that really struck me, Lisa, is, you know, you talking about how the pandemic is so challenging in that it compromises our social connectedness in some ways. And then Katie, you talking about your dancing really highlights creative, you know, new, exciting ways for people to become socially connected, right? Even in the midst of something like this. And I guess what I'm wondering, you know, is what other strategies either of you have witnessed in your communities or other communities that you work with or, you know, have friends in where you've seen people really come up with these creative strategies for building connection in a time when connection is challenging. I've been, I guess, not so amazed because I think once you start studying resilience, you just realize how amazing humans are and have been and what they and we have lived through and come up somehow still dancing, still creating, still dreaming. And when I think at the very practical level, I think of mutual aid and restorative justice efforts like that of the Ahimsa Collective in California and like a friend of mine is working on in Brooklyn, New York. So mutual aid projects, which basically means it's not like there's a donor out here who offers their money to help these poor people over here, but rather members of the same community are finding ways to resource each other. And the one in Brooklyn is helping to make sure that people get their groceries and using logistical skills and community connections to help people who are more vulnerable, who are part of the very same community, get their needs met. So I I think, and in Harrisonburg as well, there are mutual aid, you know, the day that the toilet paper (laughs) flew off the shelves, people started local groups on Facebook to say, okay, what do people need? How do we organize for this? So I think that is one piece of just remembering that we have extraordinary capacity for mutual aid and 
going back a long way to models of organizing, to Ella Baker's model of organizing that says it's not about some strong leadership from the top, but it's about talking to everyone who's in the situation and seeing how to resource ourselves and each other. I see that happening in a lot of different places. And on the creativity front, from poets to storytellers to dancers to artists, you know, we just came out of Pride Month. June was Gay Pride Month or LGBTQ plus plus, which label you identify with. And the creativity and resilience of these different communities to sustain a spirit of celebration, even as they're also honoring the seriousness and the pain that is happening. I I think those are some of the things that I've been witnessing. I agree, Katie. I've seen so much organic social connection, social support arising right from the neighborhood level, even increasing the amount that neighbors talk to each other. So as people have been going into the streets to walk the streets for exercise around here, I've just noticed more eye contact, more connection at the local neighborhood level as the the borders started to shut and the world got smaller and smaller. People are, I think naturally, most, most people are hardwired to seek those connections and to look out for their neighbors. And there's similar things here, Facebook connective groups and looking out how to get groceries for the elderly and those who might be isolated and things like that. And another thing I've noticed here, and I think New Zealand, the New Zealand Prime Minister has done this very well, is the social messaging that has been less around fighting the virus, like less war messaging coming from the Prime Minister's office, both here and in New Zealand, and more a message of social responsibility of, yes, we need to tackle this virus, but we need to do it as part of our care for each other. We need to protect each other. We need to care for the vulnerable among us. This is a collective responsibility. This is a collective struggle. We can support our neighbours and we are basically sending that social messaging right from the top of we are all in this together. It might look different. You know, we're we're in the same storm. We might be in different lifeboats, but we have a, a responsibility to care for our neighbours, whatever life, particular lifeboat they're in. And one way we can do that is by social distancing. And so that particular frame, I think, has equipped New Zealand and I think it's one thing that Australia's done well as well in this particular crisis in a way that's been really helpful and has really sort of given a push towards that social responsibility connection orientation. Yeah, thinking of the role of kind of a social responsibility or justice perspective on addressing the pandemic and thinking about, you know, what is a a socially informed response to it. I guess I'm I'm curious as graduates of the the peace studies program, both of you, what your thoughts are on how we move even more, you know, and towards that kind of justice-oriented perspective in response, knowing that we need to take the long view in both the current situation that is likely going to persist for some time, but also, you know, the fallout. So, I mean, thinking of kind of, you know, the long view of peace building in conjunction with your expertise in trauma and resilience, what kinds of questions are you thinking about for the long view on this? 
I'm laughing a bit because I'm not sure I have a long view. <laughs> I'm in that camp. I'm like, I have, I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. And, and my view right now is like, how do I make it work? How did the, the math around my work, as Katie mentioned earlier, I'm in that acknowledging my privileged status here and endlessly aware of that, but doesn't negate the fact that the math around homeschooling young children and, and working nearly full-time it just doesn't match up. So it's a beautiful, wonderful question. One that I think really bears some thinking about. And so while I do collect my thoughts, Katie, would would you like to share any thoughts you have about a long view? Sure, sure. Sorry to put you on the spot there, Lisa. Yeah. When I hear the long view, I, I think of both like that inspiration, like, okay, there's the, the prayer that is often attributed to Romero, but apparently was not actually written by Romero. You know, we are prophets of a future, not our own ministers, not messiahs. And so in some ways we, we do our piece. And then sometimes you actually see the change in your lifetime, right? Like I think of my friends in Richmond watching these monuments come down who have worked for decades to bring about awareness of the harm that those monuments represent. I think about, you know, just these last couple of days, the announcement that the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was canceled, which was a campaign for years that people have been doing to struggle against having a pipeline laid through the backyards of some of our neighbors. You know, and I don't have my own children who I'm taking care of, but I have friends with with children and we're very concerned about their children and what is the future that's going to be available to them. And I think to the extent that people have any bandwidth and to the extent that they're not completely economically against a wall, there is a moment to go more slowly, that we're not running in the hectic pace that many people were. And many people are having to run harder right now. So yes, let's acknowledge that. But there's a lot of possibility that comes from the slowing down to think about how can we live everything differently? And, you know, for those of us who are in academic communities, it means, okay, how can we do different versions of education? And I think about the the STAR program that I've been working with for five years, and we always had intensive together bodies in the same room trainings. And when on March 10th, a colleague asked me, do you think you could do STAR online? I said, absolutely not. (laughs) And when three or four or five days into dancing five times a day, I was asked, do you think there's anything we could do? I said, absolutely. There's a million things we could do online. Because I started to see what could happen when we're not just sitting and trying to do what we did in classrooms, but when we're doing things that are really really weird, frankly, but finding new ways to interact through different media and new ways to be present in ourselves. So I don't know how that lands and if that makes sense, but I'm both acknowledging that some really huge things are happening And it doesn't feel like it's a coincidence that it's happening at this time where our lives have been disrupted. Yeah, I think there are definitely some huge things happening. I think that with great disruption always comes great change and comes great opportunity, right? There's there's hardship with that and there's opportunity with that. But when I think about the long view for resilience, I think about the fact that people 
must have some sort of baseline sense of safety and security before you can even begin to sensibly talk about resilience. And so just picking up on what Katie was saying about education and and learning to educate differently. And I just look at the long view and, and I guess my long view is there are so many people who have such a heart for justice and for their fellow humans. And there are so many people who have a different role to play in this great big jigsaw puzzle of working towards change. And I guess my long view is there are so many ways that you can invest your efforts and your heart into trying to make the world a better place and working to alleviate poverty and providing better health care, particularly in low-income areas where poverty breeds illness and illness breeds poverty and it becomes such a destructive cycle, working to increase food security, working to foster community networks for support and doing, as Katie was talking about, fashioning new and innovative communities by using the incredible power of online technology. And there's so much that feels grim and dark and hard in the world right now. And I I still think there's so many ways that people can be working to help other people. And I think one thing that the pandemic has highlighted is just what a worthwhile endeavour that that is to try to figure out where you can make those contributions. Great. Thank you both. And Lisa, I really I really liked the point you highlighted and it circles back to some of the earlier points around structural inequity. And that's that, you know, people need the resources, right? So when we think about the long view, resource access and support and structural access becomes just a, a huge question and of incredible importance. And it always has been, but it is highlighted, I think, in a more public way now. Katie, did you have something else to add there? Yeah, I think this is also a time that's giving us a mirror to look into about not just, oh, how do we help those people out there, but how do we look at our own structures and interrogate where are the cracks in our own structures, whether it's myself and Mm -hmm. how you know, white supremacy is showing up in me or whether it's my institution and, okay, we're predominantly white, but what what are we doing about that? And how do we bring more people who have traditionally not been the people in power into more positions of power in the leadership? Because there's certainly a million capacities in every community and it's not really accidental that it's mostly people who have been structurally supported who hold the leadership positions. So I think there's both like, okay, those of us who have a heart for justice, we can work to end poverty. We can, we can work to these things. And I think even in our very own institutions and our very own classrooms, we can take a different look at that. And I think more and more perspective and tools and voices are coming out to help us look at that with greater clarity. And I would just throw one more thing in, which is the definition that I've been working with of resilience is healthy power amidst vulnerability and uncertainty. So not kind of a resilience that says, I'm going to feel strong, I'm going to feel great, I'm not going to feel anxiety because I'm just going to know that everything's going to be okay, but rather in the middle of the vulnerability, in the middle of the uncertainty, still finding ways to cultivate healthy power. And and that's a power that comes together from that kind of mutual aid orientation, as opposed to the, you know, the hierarchical power structures that most of us are working in. And so how do we 
bring little microclimate kind of changes, to use Laura Vanderloop. Lipsky's language, you know, how do we bring changes to the microclimates that we're in to break through some of that and, and build healthy power even amidst all the uncertainty? And how do we do that in our own lives as well? Like there's so many different levels that we've been talking about socially and, and then down to the community. And a lot of my work focuses on individual resilience, which to be honest, I don't think you can actually have if you divorce it from community relationships at any level. But so taking that lens of healthy power in the midst of uncertainty and thinking about how does that work in my own life as well? What strategies and tools and coping mechanisms and supportive relationships and perspectives and all the other things that we do to attempt to bolster our own health and well-being so that we can then attend to the health and well-being of others? I think that's a great definition. Well, thank you both for sharing um, your expertise with us today and for engaging in this conversation. I think it has been really insightful just thinking about all of the different ways in which we can think both about the the multi-level, multi-systemic effects that adversity like the pandemic and the other forms of violence going on in our communities have had, but also, you know, how we can think about resilience multi-systemically from kind of those microsystems to much broader questions about long-term views and peace building. So thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. I'm so grateful for my time at Notre Dame many, many years ago and for all that the Croc program and others at Notre Dame are doing to carry these conversations forward and to create and hold space for that. So Thanks so much for creating this space today. Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk with you both. Hope we get to do it again. Maybe not even recorded. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. <laughs>